What would the central theme be? If you had one chance, like let's say somebody came up to you and said, we're going to give you a movie, and you get to write this script, what would you center your life story around? Every good story, every good movie has a theme, has a plot. What would you choose? How would you choose to frame that? Well, we're going to be studying the book of Romans, and in some ways, to me, Romans feels like kind of that one chance that Paul had. Paul had many chances throughout his career to tell people about the gospel, but there's something different about Romans. Romans was written to, you're going to be maybe surprised at this, the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was, was the, the city of Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire, very important city. So you can almost picture Paul, as he's writing this letter, thinking to himself, how do I communicate the gospel message to them, the love of Christ to them. Paul wrote at least 13 books of the Bible. I say at least because some people think he may have also written the book of Hebrews, but not counting Hebrews, he wrote 13 books of the Bible. And all 13 of them are wonderful and worth studying. But there's something unique about Romans, something wonderful about Romans. And we're going to take a look over the next four months here at Cornerstone at the first half of the book of Romans. There's 16 chapters in the book. We're going to take a look at the first eight chapters in this sermon series. It's going to take about four months. Now, I've come up with a quote that perhaps only pastors can appreciate, but I'll I'll give it to you all anyways. Every pastor would be crazy not to preach through Romans, but every pastor would be crazy to preach through Romans. Now, okay, again, you're not laughing, okay, because you're not pastors. Maybe you don't see this the way I do, but... uh, The way I see this is that this is such a wonderful book and it feels to me like, of course, we should look into the book of Romans. We should dive into it and figure out what's there. But on the other hand, I feel this sense of humility and awe when I look at this book and realize that it's my task to try to describe to you accurately what's in there. It is a huge task. So you can be praying for me over the next four months as I attempt to do this because I I do feel a little bit crazy to try it. Uh, But we trust... Uh, I trust that the Holy Spirit will communicate to you over the next four months. And actually, a huge part of that, I believe, will be your effort on your own to look into this book. So I'm going to challenge you like I often do when we, when we start these longer sermon series. I want you to be reading the book of Romans for yourself. I want you to chew on it. I want you to see the, the beauty of this book and of the gospel message that God has given to us. Now, we're only going to spend four months doing this. Some of you might be thinking, only? Come on, that seems like a long time. Well, I assure you, I will not be setting any world records for length of time going through the book of Romans. Did anybody by chance go to Bethlehem Baptist? That's the the church down in the cities where John Piper was pastor. Anywhere from like the late 90s to the early 2000s and hear John Piper preach a sermon on Romans? I did. I was there something like 2003. I heard him preach on just a few verses in Romans 9. Well, I, I just looked it up this week. He has 225 sermons on the book of Romans, okay? So for me to do about 17 or so, you, you can see that uh, a lot of people spend a lot more time on this. But uh, we're only going to do it in four months. So you have four months to get to know this book on your own. But even in that then, I, I feel like as I'm going through Romans 8, there are going to be lots of things that I miss. There might be some verses that I just glossed over, maybe verses that you were thinking, oh, I hope he really dives into that one, and I just might not. So if you ever feel like that, please know you can talk to me. You can come up to me and say, hey, I really wanted to know what you thought about verse 13 or or whatever it is. I'd be glad to do that with you. We just might not have time for all of that 
uh, in the sermon series. So why Romans 1 through 8? Well, to me, it just does such a wonderful job of explaining to us what our relationship with God is like. In this book, we will see the depths of our sin. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time, uh, especially in the coming weeks, talking about sin. But also, we're going to see the wonderful, uh, amazing grace with which God has saved us. And not only that, not just plucking us out of sin, but also setting us into a new life in which he wants to continually lead us. There are wonderful things for us to study in this book. And Paul walks through this argument in such a logical fashion. So the, the engineer in me, or the, the engineered, if some of you might say, um, likes the, the logical kind of step-by-step fashion with which Paul lays out the gospel message. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next four months, is, is looking at that. Now I've often said, again, this is one other reason why I picked Romans 1 through 8. I've often said this. If you want to know the gospel in one verse, anybody have a guess? One verse. John 3.16, right? You guys knew that. You were thinking about Romans, I know. But John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is a wonderful verse. In one verse, John gets the gospel message out. And if you want a little bit longer passage, I've often said Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a fantastic place to go to describe the gospel. It tells us how we were dead in sin, but by God's grace we have been made alive in Christ through faith. If you want an even longer section, what I've often said, and I'll say it again here, Romans 1 through 8, fantastic job of unpacking the depth of the gospel message. So that's why we're going to do this. Um... Now, the gospel message, don't misunderstand. I'm going to say this, you know, exaggerating, but a zillion times throughout this message. The gospel is not just a message that we need to hear in order to be saved, and then we move on to something else as we progress in our Christian faith. No, the gospel message is a message that we need to continue to live out. So, Romans is not just a message that you would give to somebody who's seeking and wants to understand the gospel. It's a message that we need to keep chewing on, to keep growing in our faith. And as such, Romans has long been a treasured book in the history of the church. Martin Luther said, It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So that's what we're going to do over the next four months. We're going to read it. We're going to ponder it. We're going to chew on it and see how good it tastes. And I think that we will gain an even better taste for the gospel message by doing this study. I, I think and I hope that we will be encouraged even more so to live the life that God has for us by looking at the gospel messages seen in Romans 1 through 8. So to do eight chapters of the Bible in four months, that means that approximately we need to take about half a chapter per sermon. So today we're going to look at the first half of chapter 1, and I'd like to read it now. And and I kind of consider this section, verses 1 through 17, as the introduction to Romans. Okay, So think of it that way, as an introduction. Starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, the way that I want to handle this section today is I want to point out to you six main characters from it. Now, the first three are people or groups of people, and then the second set of three main characters is concepts. Okay? So the first main character today is God. And when I say God, I'm speaking in a Trinitarian sense. So I mean God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, I came up with a list of themes that I thought that Romans 1 through 8 might be about. I came up with three words that I thought these would kind of describe some of the main topics in it. But I missed one. And let me, I, I was reading a commentary on, uh, on Wednesday, and there was this quote in here by Leon Morris. He said, God is the most important word in this epistle. And I stopped for a second. Oh, he's probably right. So I, I checked it out. I picked my three words that I thought were really important, and I looked for every occurrence of them in Romans 1 through 8. And then I compared it to the number of times that God and Jesus are mentioned in Romans 1 through 8. And wouldn't you know it, God and Jesus are there more than twice as much as those other three words combined. Now, why do I say that? Um, And it might be true of many books of the Bible. But the reason I say it is because we can't overlook God. Any good thing that we will learn in the book of Romans is there. Why? Because God wants us to know it. He loves us. He gave us this gospel message because he loves us. So let's remember that he is the main character. And especially when we think about the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that, by the way, in verses 3 and 4. We learn of Jesus in those verses that he came as a human, descended as David, as Scripture said it was. You see that again? This is God's plan. He wanted us to know that Jesus was coming. And then in verse 4, it talks about Jesus and his, his death and resurrection. It talks of him in there as the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It's pretty easy to look at these verses and to see uh, what we would call, here's your your 10 cent word for the day, the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jeff, do you know that one? Uh, I I trained, he's sort of, okay, okay, we'll we'll work on you, Jeff. 
Jeff and I meet together with some other pastors. We talk about theology. Hypostatic union means that Jesus Christ is both fully man and fully God. He came born of David, but he's also the Son of God. And that is monumentally important as we think about the sacrifice on the cross. Because as man, he was able to stand as our substitute. It was our sin that brought death to us. But Jesus, as a man, was able to take our sin upon himself. But then as God, he was able to defeat the powers of sin and death and the devil. So, so right there in verses 3 through 4, we, we see this, this wonderful news of who Jesus Christ is and, and the power with which he came and the power with which he was resurrected from the dead. So eventually today, you're going to hear me say that Romans is about the gospel. But before I say that, I want you to hear me say that the gospel is about God. We have a gospel message because we have a God who loves us and wants us to be saved. And as you think about the Trinity, and this is important to remember, the Trinity has always existed since eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always lived together in a loving unity. And in the love that they had amongst themselves, they enacted this gospel plan. Jesus the Son came, the Holy Spirit drawing us to God the Father, so that we could be included in that love relationship with God forever. It is a wonderful message, and we have it because we have a wonderful, amazing God. Let's not overlook that. As we remember all the wonderful things we'll see in Romans, we have them because we have a great God. Okay, second main character in the book is Paul. Paul. Now, the book of Romans isn't about Paul, but he wrote it, and as such, it helps us to understand the book if we can understand it through his eyes. In verse 1, he calls himself a servant and an apostle. Now, servant is a lowly term. Any way you describe it, uh, it always means that there is somebody that you are serving. But Paul wore that term as a badge of honor because he knew that he was serving this wonderful God that I just briefly described to you. And then not only was Paul a servant, but also he was an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. So Paul was sent by God, and specifically, specifically we see in verse 5 that he was sent to the Gentiles, and Gentiles just means people who weren't Jews. So Paul was given a mission by God. We would call him a missionary. He went with the message of Jesus Christ and brought it to Gentiles, including people like the Romans. Paul took that role seriously. If you flip to the maps section of your Bible, you might have a map of how widely Paul traveled. And you think about all that travel that he did before airplanes, before cars. It cost him a lot to go and bring the gospel message to Gentiles. But he gave himself to that mission knowing that he was sent by God. And I think there's some application in here for us that, that we should have with us that same sense of urgency like, like Jeff was talking about. We care about people. We want to get in relationships with them. We want to bring the gospel to them. Why? Because God cares about them. He cared enough to bring the gospel to you. We should be people who care enough to bring the gospel to others. Um, one other interesting note here about Paul he had not yet visited Rome. Some of the letters that he wrote to churches were places that he had spent a lot of time in, but not this one. He had not yet been to the Roman church. And that actually makes Romans somewhat unique. And I think actually one of the reasons that Romans is so well loved by so many people, I think, is because Paul wrote more generally 
to Romans. Other letters, he's talking about very specific issues that he knew about in the church. But here, he, in some ways, is just very simply and generally telling them what the gospel message is. So I, I think that's kind of neat that in this letter to this important city, we have this very general description of the gospel message. Um, and as Paul was, going, was writing this letter to the Romans, we see his heart for them, wanting to pray for them, and wanting to come and strengthen and encourage them. But do you notice how he kind of stops himself in, in verses 10 through 13? And then he, it's like he says, but wait a second, it's, it's not just me that's going to encourage you, I want to be strengthened by you as well. And, and may that just be a reminder for us who lead, that, that we are not the only ones who do the strengthening, we can be strengthened as we interact with those that we're leading too. There's a humility here in Paul that I think that we all should adapt. Okay, third main character is the church in Rome. Now, I've already mentioned Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, and isn't it neat that in that, that very important city, the gospel was taking root. It says there in verse 8 that their faith was being reported all over the world. I think that's pretty neat. In verse 7, Paul called them saints. You know what the word saint means? Anybody know that one? Set apart, S- set apart kind of. Uh, very close, actually. Yep. Uh, holy one is the way, I, I think, the better translation of it. Holy ones. Now, why are they holy ones in Rome? Is it because they were so important as the, the capital city of the empire? No, it's because when God calls us, that's what he does. He makes us holy. So any one of us who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord... We are saints because God is bringing us through a process of making us holy. And, and notice, it's not about ourselves. Right before, they're called saints in verse 7. It says that they are loved by God. That's, that's probably the important part there. Loved by God. And then right after they're called saints, it says grace and peace to you. So God is at work to make his children, and, and that's us who know him even today. He's at work to make us holy to make us saints. I think that's pretty cool. Um, Okay, so the church in Rome, obviously the book was written to them, to give the gospel to them so that they could chew on it. And and that's what we want to do here. We want to chew on the gospel. And that leads me to my fourth main character, the gospel. Now, I put these points not in order of importance. I I didn't attempt to do that. But if I did, I don't think that the gospel would be fourth in importance. It's a pretty important thing. In fact, I think that that's what Romans is about. And I don't stand alone in that. Uh, There's a a theologian named Doug Moo. I'm reading his commentary as I study this. uh, I've got a quote from him. He talked about uh, the best candidate for the theme of the entire book of Romans is simply the gospel. That's what Romans is about. Uh, Four times in our passage today in the Greek, Paul uses the word gospel. And the word gospel is actually a very simple word in Greek. It's, a, it's a, a compound word coming from the word good and the word news. It just very simply means good news. In some ways, our word gospel kind of hides that a little bit. So I want you to know that. The gospel is good news. That's simply what the word means. And we know theologically that it's the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ but then also it's about the new life that God wants us to live in Christ. That's all wrapped up in that little word, gospel, the good news. So 
if our passage today is an introduction to the book of Romans, then it appears that the theme of Romans is gospel. Now, one interesting fact, though, for the rest of Romans 1 through 8, after our passage today, between 1.18 and the end of chapter 8, the word gospel only appears once in there. So you might say, well, how can the gospel be the theme of the book if it only appears after the first half chapter one time? Well, think of it this way. Let's say you're a college freshman and you go to buy your economics book for your economics class. And it says right on the cover there, economics in big, huge letters. So you know the book is about economics. And you read chapter one and it tells you all about economics. It uses the word like a hundred times in there to tell you what the word economics means. But then perhaps starting in chapter two through the rest of the book, it just tells you all about economics without using the word. You already know exactly what the book is about. It just doesn't use the word to describe it. And I think that's exactly what we have going on here in Romans. I think if we rightly understand this introduction to Romans here in the first half of the first chapter, we'll see that it is about the gospel. And everything we're going to learn then through chapter 8 is about the gospel. That's why uh, Paul says in verse 1 that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And in verse 9, he says that he serves God with his whole heart or spirit in preaching the gospel. He said in verse 15 that he was eager to, or excuse me, yeah, is that right? Verse 15, eager to preach the gospel. And in verse 16, that he was not ashamed of the gospel because as we learn in verse 17, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is a powerful message. And with that as his setup, he spends the next seven and a half chapters describing the gospel. The greatest problem that we humans could ever face is the problem of sin. Sin is such a problem because it separates us from God. Now whether you think about that like Adam and Eve in the garden and when they sinned and they had separation from God or whether you think about it in our life where we sin sometimes, we choose a path different from the one that God has for us and what happens? Even if we're Christians and we sin, what do we feel? We feel distant from God. And the reason we feel distant from God is because that's what sin does. Now praise the Lord, we know that Jesus Christ forgives us of our sin but Sin separates us from God, and left to ourselves, that separation would be complete and eternal. It would mean eternity in hell for us who are left in our sin. God's solution to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a monumentally important message. And through the gospel, God declares us sinners to be innocent, and he brings us into a relationship with himself that lasts forever. So up until Jesus came, all of scripture was pointing ahead to him. And then as we think about our lives, really, they only make proper sense when we look back to the cross of Christ and understand what he has done for us to draw us into a relationship with God. And in that sense, the gospel is central. We have kind of a a theological guru in our denomination. He He kind of heads up the the oversight of all the pastors to make sure that we're theologically accurate. And a couple years ago, he went around telling us all that we have to keep the gospel central. There are so many other things that we as Christians or that we as churches could get so fired up about, but he said that every single thing that we do has to stem out from the gospel. And if it doesn't stem out from the gospel, or if we've forgotten that it comes from the gospel, we shouldn't be doing it. 
or at least we shouldn't be doing it the way that we've been doing it. We need to have the gospel of Jesus Christ as central to our lives. We need Jesus Christ as the foundation. Nothing else works. The only message of salvation, as we saying, there is no other name. It is only Jesus. And the good news is that God brought him to us. And he is to be the center of our lives. And, and like I've said and will continue to say, it's not just that we receive him and that we get our salvation and then we go our own way. It's that we are to continue to live in him. Look at verse 15. This is great. I, I, I hope you'll find this to be at least somewhat interesting. Paul told the Romans that he was eager to preach the gospel to them. Now, you might just assume at first glance, like perhaps I did, that what he meant was that he wanted to go to Rome and find some people who weren't yet Christians and preach the gospel to them. And I'm guessing that Paul did want to do that. But that's not exactly what it says here. Look more closely at the letter. In, in verse 6, who is the, Ro- the book of Romans addressed to? It says, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He is talking to people who already know the gospel. And what does he say? Again, in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. So let me just say that as your pastor. I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Even to those of you who have known it for 70 years, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because it is a message that we must continue to cling to and continue to live in. So two points of application on this. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, do it now. Don't wait another day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. In his love, God has offered Jesus Christ for you as a sacrifice for your sin. And God did that because he loves you. Jesus did it willingly because he loves you. And then the second point of application, if you have received Jesus, continue in him for the rest of your life. Living your life with the gospel as central. You see, the gospel is a message that we need to continue to figure out. Even for us, right now, Fergus Falls, 2014, even if you've known it, like I said, for 70 years, we need to continue to figure out what the gospel means for us, what it means for our community, what it means for your family, what it means for everybody around you. And and don't forget, for yourself, that we need to keep on living out the entailments of the gospel. Okay, I want to move on now to the fifth main character. But actually, the fifth main character is just really a spin-off of this fourth main character. I thought about calling it 4A and 4B, but uh, I'm just going to call it number five here. Fifth main character is evangelism. Now, evangelism is simply a word built off of the word gospel. It's, it takes that same Greek root word, good news, and it just means bringing the good news to other people. In verses 14 through 16, we see three phrases that describe Paul's heart in evangelism. Obligated, eager, and not ashamed. In my old Bible, I have those three phrases underlined. And for those of you who know me well, you know that I almost never underline anything in my Bible. But, but also remember this. I had it underlined in my old Bible, and I still remember it in my new Bible that I had it underlined. So I... Anyways, I don't mind if you underline it. And actually, if you're an underliner, these might be three phrases that you would want to underline. Obligated, eager, not ashamed. I want to explain each one real quick. Um, 
First, in verse 15, Paul felt obligated to share the gospel. He felt that he had been given such a wonderful gift from God, and he knew that it was so wonderful that it should not be kept to himself, that he felt this obligation to give it to others. And I think that's a wonderful response for us. A, a, a wonderful response of praise to God. Like oftentimes we sing as a response to God. But another very proper response to worship God for the wonders of the gospel message is to tell other people about it. So point of application here, if you think the gospel is good news for you, you should share it with others too. Okay, and then second, Paul was eager in verse 16, eager to preach the gospel. Now for so many Christians, I think uh, they would have to say that eager is the opposite of what they feel about sharing the gospel. I know I felt that way for a long time. Actually, I was, I was scared, but I was certainly not eager. I, I looked up, uh, I went on thesaurus.com this week, and I looked up antonyms for eager, so antonym just meaning opposites, and there was one that caught my eye. Dispassionate. I feel like there are a lot of Christians out there today, and, and we all probably are like this at times, including myself, where we become dispassionate about proclaiming the gospel. I like the model of Paul here, though. He was eager to proclaim the gospel message. Now, I don't want to shame anyone today. I just want to remind you that the gospel is great news and should be shared. Paul was eager to share it, and I pray that we would be eager as well. So, point of application... If you think the gospel is good news for you, you should share it with others too. Okay? And then third, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed. Most of us have probably felt ashamed at some times as we've thought about sharing the gospel with other people but haven't done it. Um, and you know, that's probably going to continue. There will probably be other times in our lives where we, where we feel that way. But I hope that the general pattern of our lives is that we would jump at the opportunity to share the gospel. If God opens a door, I pray that we would remember that it, it's the message of salvation for us. Paul says that right here, that it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's in verse 6. Now, we might talk ourselves into thinking that people don't want to hear it, or that it will make our relationship awkward if we bring up that subject. And those things may be true. Those things may be true. But let's not let us stop, let's not let those feelings stop us from sharing the gospel. I pray that we would not be ashamed, but that we would eagerly go and share this wonderful message of salvation with them, knowing that it is the power of God to save them. Now think about that. What's of greater consequence? You may be feeling a little bit awkward for a few moments, or the gospel saving somebody for eternity. Yeah, I know we have these feelings of awkwardness. But let me just give you a, another point of application here. And actually, it's the same point of application. And I know it's the same point of application because I wrote it and I just actually copied and pasted it for all three of these applications. I want you to get this. It's no problem for me to repeat it for you. If you think the gospel is good news for you, you should share it with others too. Any of you believe that the gospel is good news for you? I, I hope we all do. Let's share it with other people. Okay, then the six main characters, there's two of them here, I've lumped them together. Righteousness and faith. Now I know that those two words are very different, but they are most certainly linked together in this, gospel, in this uh, book of Romans. 
Righteousness, in Paul's writings, is a description of someone who is perfect. For example, in 2 Timothy, he calls God the righteous judge. Now, we, on the other hand, are not perfect. There's there's a very famous verse in Romans 3. I'm sure many of you know it by heart. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's who we are as humans. We are people who are not perfect. And, And that's a huge problem because left in our sin, we would not be able to spend eternity with a righteous God. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We need righteousness from God. But praise the Lord that is exactly what is revealed to us in the gospel. And I want you to look at verse 17. And, and I, as I was thinking about this first part of verse 17, I was just reminded again how sweet it is. Verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Righteousness, something that we do not have on our own, but something that we desperately need if we want to spend eternity with God. That kind of righteousness is revealed, is made known to us. How? In the gospel. How do we get that righteousness? Well, that leads to this other main character here, faith. Paul says it is by faith from first to last in verse 17, or perhaps a better translation would be from faith to faith. Now, I'm not sure I know exactly how to interpret that, but I think what it means is that it's it's all faith from beginning to end. It's faith. That's the only way to receive righteousness from God is to have faith. And not just any kind of faith, not just this uh, feel-good kind of I-believe-in-myself sort of faith. No, that's not going to get you anywhere. This kind of faith is faith in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. He died for us, and to have faith in him means that we give our lives to him and that we follow him. So faith in that sense is a giving up of ourselves to follow God, to walk with him, recognizing that he is Lord, he is king, he is in control, and we are not. Now, saying it that way reminds me of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I really dislike the word Protestant as a label today. Somebody, you know, describe your Christian faith in one word. Protest. No, that is not, no, I would just not choose that word. But historically speaking, yes, I fall under the Protestant umbrella. And the reason that I say that, just a a little history lesson here, here, about 500 years ago, the first reformers, people like Martin Luther and other people along with him, looked at verses like Romans 1.17 and realized the only way to receive righteousness from God is by faith, not by works, not by earning it. The church at that time was preaching something different, and, and the church needed a reformation, and it hinged on this idea of faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have to Recognize we are not righteous on our own. We have to put our faith in Christ. It's the only way of salvation. So in that sense, yes, I am a Protestant, even though I really don't like that label. Um, it is faith from first to last. The quote at the end of verse 17, then, is from the book of Habakkuk. It says, the righteous will live by faith. Theologians argue about whether that means that people become righteous by faith, or whether it's people who are already righteous and they continue to live by faith. My answer, and, and it's not just because I'm a pacifier and I want everybody to get along, but uh, my answer is I think it's both. The only way to be made righteous is through faith. 
by placing our faith in Christ. That's how we begin a relationship with Him. But then also, as we continue in that relationship, how are we to continue? We know this from the verses we say every Sunday at the end of our service. Just as we received Him, we are to continue in Him. It is by faith from first to last. You see what Paul is saying there? That phrase sometimes to me has been hard to understand. By from faith to faith is what it says in the Greek. What does it mean? I think it means we start from faith and we go all the way to faith. That's our road trip on this journey of life here, from faith to faith. John Stott, he, he also wrote a commentary that I might be reading. And by the way, if you want to read a commentary throughout this sermon series, I have a couple of, of good uh, recommendations for you. Some of you may want to do that in your own study of Romans. John Stott said, the Christian life is by faith from beginning to end. Faith, that's one of those words that I counted as I was doing my study. Faith, whether in its verbal or noun form, occurs 37 times in the book of Romans, just in chapters 1 through 8. It is certainly a key concept that we will keep coming back to. And again, the reason it's so key is because it's the only way for us to be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul, writing in a different context, said, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think that's just well said by Paul there. Kudos to you, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit on that one. Jesus became sin for us because we don't have any righteousness of our own. And think about that. He took our sin. We get to be clothed with his righteousness. It is a wonderful transaction that works out really well for us. So if you want righteousness, you have to put your faith in Christ. And let me get to my conclusion now. The gospel demands a response. The proper response is faith. I hope you've seen by now that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very important message. It's so important that it demands a response from every one of us. And the only proper response is faith. To give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us in order that we might be clothed with his righteousness so that we can spend eternity with God. And that, that giving over of ourselves kind of reminds me of Abraham in chapter 12. Well, back then he was called Abram. I, I think it's one of the most wonderful word pictures of faith in the Bible and it speaks to us today. God called him and he said, Abram, I want you go to go to the land that I will show you. Now, Abram could have responded back to God and said, God, you know what? I kind of like the life that I've made for myself. I kind of want to keep it. But he didn't say that. God said, go, and Abraham went. That is faith. And it's the faith that God still wants from us today. We came into this world assuming that we were the king or the queen of our own life, that we could make our own decisions according to whatever we felt was best. So, so many of us, did, every one of us did that. We chose our own path, thinking, we, and what do we try to fill our lives with on this path? Things that we thought would be good for us. Ironically, though, what the Bible teaches us is that that path leads to death. We chose that path because we thought it would be life. But the end of that path is death. What we need to do then is to give our lives to God and choose a different path. And, and that path is a person. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the path. 
We're to give our lives to Jesus and follow him. And then God gives us life, the life that is truly life. So the ironic thing is we think we have a path here that's going to lead to pleasure, enjoyment, and what we want. But really, it's the path that God has, has picked for us that is the path that leads to joy. We enter that path by faith. We are to continue on that path by faith. From faith to faith. The righteous will live by faith. So we're to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and continue living in Him. And by the way, that faith, as Paul says in verse 5, includes obedience, meaning we obey God in whatever it is that He has for us. And then I'll just close with this verse from Philippians 1.27. I think it really kind of sums up well what we're talking about today. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wherever we go in life, we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you brought this gospel message to us. Jesus, we thank you that, that you brought it at great cost to yourself. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has reminded us of the power and of the truth of this gospel message. And I pray that every single one of us would respond rightly by faith. And if there are any here, God, who have not yet responded in faith, I pray that even now they would, by faith, give their life to you to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then, God, for those of us who have done that, whether that's today or many years ago, I pray that you would strengthen us to continue to live by faith, that we would remember that the gospel message is still good and we must continue to build our lives on Christ. Thank you for this wonderful message, which means righteousness and salvation for us. Thank you for your love, God. I pray that we would honor you by living by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.